Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds today on our wonderful spring morning, another spring morning. So we're very delighted to have Dr. Morse with us today, and just before introducing her, I'm going to um, have Brian Remillard come up to do that. Um, I want to also say that this has been a great National Kidney Week, and you might talk a moment about that uh, in general. But it's also been an incredible exposure, again, to our relationship in the world of global health. And just a wonderful experience of having Professor uh, Cleofat with us, and now Michelle to tell us a bit more about some of the things that have been going on with Partners in Health in Haiti. Um, this is really important work and really important concept, and I'm just delighted that we've been able to help this week in um, bringing some more attention to this. So without further ado, I want to bring Brian Remillard up. As you know, he's an associate professor of medicine. He's the section chief in the renal hypertension section. He runs as the medical director of the Fresenius Dialysis Unit, the dialysis here, and also has been a major champion for the work that we're doing in Haiti. One could also call him a hero in many ways. He, the work that he's brought to uh, do dialysis in Haiti, his dream of bringing kidney transplantation to that country, these are all amazing things. And I'm just very happy and proud that he's a member of our faculty. Brian, come up and tell us about Dr. Morse. Dr. Morse, by the way, has no uh, conflicts of interest to report for today's talk. Thanks. Uh, I, I will say just on the conflict of interest thing that uh, Michelle refused her honorarium and actually allowed us to use it uh, to, to put into the Haiti account so we can bring another Haitian resident here um, in the future. I, I, I wanted to just start with, a, I hope it's okay to make a few political comments. Um, I think it's, it's, it's almost necessary. It would be expected. Yeah, it would be expected from me. It's why, why I'm never going to be promoted to a professor. Um, but, you, you know, um, I, I saw the devastation of the earthquake about six days after it happened. And, but what struck me more uh, was I went to the central plateau where the earthquake really didn't have a big effect but the country was still devastated. And the country was uh, devastated by economic and, uh, and political policies that had been in place for 400 years. Um, Haiti, if people don't know, was uh, the people of Haiti didn't, weren't given their independence. They took their independence. And the price they paid for that was they were isolated by the French and they were isolated by Thomas Jefferson, who never wanted anyone to know about that because he was afraid it would ruin the good slavery gig they had going here. Um, the, the, the Haitians took the declarations of the rights of man very literally and freed themselves and have been fighting ever since. Um, I just wanted to read, this is a book, uh, Haiti, The Aftershocks of History. Just to give you, uh, when, when Philippe is here, I, I, unless you know this history, you think, well, maybe we could help him a little by giving a little here and there, and, and, and why would we do that? Well, maybe we have enough, but I think you have to understand what, we've, what, what the world has done to Haiti. Um, this is just a few uh, brief things. So when the French finally granted recognition to Haiti, 
more than two decades after its founding, they took a kind of revenge, insisting that the new nation pay an indemnity of $3 billion in current currency to compensate for the slaveholders' losses. That debt uh, existed for hundreds of years, and it was called the double debt. Um, in 1914, this is what the United States did. In 1914, the USS Machias dropped anchor in the harbor of Port-au-Prince, and a detachment of U.S. Marines disembarked. They proceeded to carry out what can only be described as international armed robbery. Entering the Bank Nationale de Haiti, they removed the vaults with $500,000 worth of gold belonging to the Haitian government, the equivalent of $11 million today. They took it in broad daylight. They took the gold back to the harbor, loaded it onto their gunboat, and shipped it to New York. The official justification for the raid was that the gold was seized. The gold that was seized was required to cover the debts of Haitians to U.S. bankers. Um, I was in the town of Hinch, and during this, uh, I think it was a 30-year occupation by the United States government, um, in the town of Hinch, uh, the people in the countryside tried to rebel. And so what did the Marines do? Well, the Marine commander targeted a particular neighborhood on the outskirts of town that he believed harbored bandits that surrounded the countryside. He put the neighborhood's residents to work constructing a new garrison, sort of a wall. Some people are, you know, some people are thinking about building walls. So they built this garrison. And, and so they, they inscripted all the Haitian men to do this. And the, and the Haitians saw this as slavery. And, and they said, oh, no, this isn't slavery. You're just being conscripted to help the Marines. But they asked one of the Haitians, well, why do you think it's slavery? He said, well, one, the work isn't paid. Two, you work with your back in the sun wearing nothing but pants. Three, they only send you home when you're sick. Four, you don't get enough to eat, just corn and beans. Five, you sleep in a prison. And six, when you try to run away, they kill you. Isn't that slavery? So that's, that's sort of uh, when I think of Philippe's visit. Um, th this is the background. And, and we, we have some political characters today talking about building walls. And I think that uh, I'm really proud to have a, someone here who, who builds bridges. And I think that's what this whole program is about with Philippe. It's about building bridges one at a time, about people opening up and saying, yeah, you can come to my service. Um, you can come and stay in my house. And we'll, we've got your back to our, our Haitian colleagues. Uh, Dr. Morse. Uh, serves as Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Haiti for the internationally renowned healthcare delivery and development organization Partners in Health. She also serves as an advisor to the medical director of Mirbalay Hospital, a new public academic medical center established through a partnership with the government of Haiti, um, Partners in Health, and Zami La Santé. Um, uh, she previously served as Director of Medical Education. In 2015, she assumed the position of Assistant Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency at Brigham Women's Hospital, a Harvard affiliate. Dr. Morse works as a hospitalist at Brigham Women's Hospital, a clinical instructor on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Um, in 2010, she founded uh, Equal Health, an NGO that aims to inspire and support the development of Haiti's next generation of healthcare leaders through improving medical education and creating opportunities for healthcare professionals in Haiti. She continues to strengthen medical education globally and expand teaching and social medicine in the U.S. and abroad and to support clinical systems strengthening through Equal Health and uh, PIHZL. 
um, as a uh, Howard Hyatt Global Health Equity Resident in Internal Medicine at Brigham Women's Hospital. Dr. Morse worked in Haiti, Rwanda, and Botswana. She focused her international work in Haiti, uh, where she developed uh, the programs to coordinate um, uh, partners in health in Zami La Santé's earthquake relief efforts, and was a first responder to the cholera epidemic, and worked on uh, women's health and equity improvement projects. Um, I think. I'm old enough now to say that it, it, it inspires me to see someone uh, young like uh, Dr. Morse, who's who's really taken on this great challenge and can serve as a role model for our faculty. Michelle. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Fantastic. Um, Brian's going to make me cry before I even start talking. Um, it is really an honor uh, to be here with you all today. I, uh, I would like to just make the point that I am here representing not myself, but an entire team in Haiti uh, of unbelievable faculty members and residents and incredibly committed volunteers as well, uh, who I work with every day uh, for many, many, many hours. <laughs> we don't do eight-hour days in Haiti at all. Um, and I'm honored to be able to represent our team in Haiti as well as our team in Boston uh, and share with you all some ideas around medical education. Um, and I think it's just really important that we take a step back, particularly in the political climate that we're in right now, knowing that we just passed International Women's Day. Yesterday was World Kidney Day. It's, a, it's an important week. And uh, even though uh, there may be some challenges on the political side here in America, um, I think one of the most amazing lessons I've learned from working in Haiti since 2009 is that things like medical education, tools like medical education, can really be a force and a movement um, towards being more progressive and innovative and equitable, despite whatever the political challenges may be that we're facing. So I'm going to speak with you today a little bit about um, some of the history of medical education in the U.S. And just as Brian started with history, uh, just about every talk I give, I start with history. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges in the current frameworks that we use for medical education. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, and highlight some examples of progressive medical education programs and global health partnerships, uh, particularly with the work that Brian and Dr. Cleofa have done together, um, and then talk a little bit about some future directions for medical education. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some time for questions as well. I always like to start uh, with history and with a story. And this is a medical student named Jean that I met in 2010 in Haiti, uh, about six months or so after the earthquake. And he was a third-year medical student at the time. Uh, you may not know that in Haiti, going to medical school is unbelievably competitive, just like it is here in the US. There are usually between four and 7,000 applications for 125 spots at the state medical school. Uh, so these are brilliant, brilliant, talented people. Um, and Jean is standing in what looks like a empty lot um, <clears throat> Excuse me, but this is actually the, the uh, grounds of the state medical school in Haiti. And Haiti's state medical school is about 130 years old. It's one of the oldest in the Western Hemisphere. Very, very well respected um, and very high quality. Um, but it was almost completely destroyed in the earthquake. 
And when I met Jean, he had not started classes yet um, because it was about six months after the earthquake and everything was on pause. Um, and he was just as inspired by medicine as he had been before the earthquake. And I was blown away by his inspiration, his motivation, and, and the fact that he was not at all discouraged by the earthquake. Uh, he had lost a lot, but he was so focused on becoming a physician and improving the health systems and medical education in Haiti. Um, and I could not believe that that kind of dedication existed after what was probably the most catastrophic disaster in the 20th century, 20, excuse me, 21st century. So to get a little bit into the history of medicine, uh, and some of you have probably read this book by Kenneth Ludmerer. Um, I think it's a fantastic history of the evolution of the American health system and how medical education really was a huge part of the change that happened in the health system in America over the past 130 years. Um, so this book, if you're, if you're a medical education guru, uh, I highly recommend starting here, uh, just because it goes from really literally the 1600s and 1700s up to modern day America and describes how medical education was kind of the foundation of the transformation of the health systems in America. Um, and that story uh, is told in many, many, many different ways throughout his book and throughout much of what you'll read about the history of medicine in America. Um, in the Civil War, of course, there were um, huge leaps ahead, I guess you could say, for, for health care uh, and lots and lots of advances in surgery. And so um, in 19, excuse me, in 1873, which is just a few years after the Civil War ended, there were only about 180 hospitals in America. And in 1909, so you know, about 30, 30 plus years later, there were over 4,000 hospitals in America. And so that was an accelerated time period for the, the development and the evolution of the healthcare system. And folks were finally starting to see what you could do in terms of surgery, what you could do in terms of medicine. Medical care. They were just starting to use microscopes and think about antibiotics and things like that. And I, the reason I put this up here is because in 1864, one of the hospitals that was built in kind of that uh, accelerated phase of the evolution of the health system was Boston City Hospital. Um, and Boston City Hospital was built in 1864, you know, as a part of this evolution of the health system, but was actually built for Irish immigrants. And it's interesting, right, because uh, in this part of American history, this huge boom in building hospitals was certainly a part of the evolution and the advancement of medicine, but was also very much about um, discrimination and about isolating different groups of people because the thought at that time was that blacks and whites could not go to the same hospitals. Irish immigrants and other whites could not go to the same hospitals. Jews and other Americans could not go to the same hospitals. So part of that boom in hospitals was about the advancement of medicine, but a big part of it was also about segregation. Um, and Johns Hopkins actually is one of the earliest schools to start accepting women. And I put them up here because they were the first. And in 1892, they were already accepting women, which was, again, radical and a huge, huge departure from uh, what modern medicine was at that time. 
Um, the eugenics movement is deeply linked to the evolution of medicine in America, and we often forget it. I think I, I had maybe an hour or so in my entire four years of medical school about eugenics, but this is an important part of history because there's still a lot of people who, who know this history, and this influenced the evolution of our health system. Um, this was an attempt, as many of you know, to try to use science to, to really um, justify prejudice and segregation. And if you think about, again, the evolution of our health system, with those roots, there are a lot of things that need to be corrected in how we do medicine, right? And if we forget about this, we forget, forget about the fact that this was a part of our history, the history of medicine in America and around the world, it's very, very easy to see how you know, we can have a fragmented system that alienates certain groups and that that may link back to things that happened literally 100 years ago. And then the Flexner report happened. Um, and Kenneth Lubmer talks a lot about this in his book. Um, and Flexner um, uh, published his report in 1910, and it was a very damning <laughs> review of medical education at the time. And he looked at basically a sample of medical schools all across the country and found that there was such a huge different, huge difference in practices. There was no standardization in what medical students were being taught. There was no standardization in how medicine was being practiced. And what he recommended were that medicine become professionalized, that it become that medical schools become associated with and integrated into universities, which at the time they were not. He recommended that basic science and kind of the you know, beginning of medical school be focused on learning around, about the basic sciences, about physiology and biology and all of these things. And he, his report really completely changed how medical education was happening in America in the beginning of the 1900s. What it also did, one of the unintended consequences that is often not cited, is that the Flexner Report actually resulted in many, many medical schools being closed. And some people would say that that was a good thing, but uh, haphazardly, unfortunately, many of the schools that closed were the medical schools that accepted women, the medical schools that accepted blacks, the medical schools that accepted Jews. And so one of the unintended consequences of this report was that medic medicine and the practice of medicine and the education of trainees in medicine became professionalized and standardized, which is fantastic, but it also alienated many groups from going to medical school, and that tradition continues in some ways. So I'd like to just look at kind of how we currently do medical education, and this is, this is just one example. Medicine medical education in the 20th century and even now, um, much of it is chalk and blackboard. In Haiti, when I met that medical student, Jean, um, when they did start classes back a few months after I first met him, uh, it was in literally a metal container with no electricity and with a chalk and blackboard. And that's where he learned physiology. Um, and many places around the world are still teaching medicine this way. And we have to think about that. You know, we're now 100 and how many? 16 years, 106 years out from the Flexner Report. And what has really changed in how we educate health professionals? And have we thought critically about what we might be doing right, what we might not be doing so well? 
Um, so Julio Frank um, wrote this fantastic report back in 2009, and this Lancet Commission report was really about how we should take a leap forward and rethink medical education again 100 years later. Um, and it's a very powerful report. It's something like 90 pages long, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend you read all of it. But if you're interested in medical education, I think it's a very clear vision for how we might leap forward, think more innovatively about medical education, and and, and try to do something different. Um, but in his report, Dr. Frank talks about not only is the content of medical education a challenge, but the structure is a challenge. And he talks about the fact that there are over 2,400 medical schools around the world, but there are 30 countries that don't have a medical school at all. And we'll get a little bit more into brain drain, but you might think that not every country needs a medical school. But if all of your health professionals have to leave your country to be educated in medicine, and then you expect them to come back, uh, that is a whole nother conversation and set of challenges. Um, there are over a million doctors, nurses, midwives, and public health professionals that are produced every year. But then there are huge, huge gaps in human resources for health, particularly in poor countries around the world. So the content we need to rethink and the structure we also need to rethink. In addition to that, even though we're spending about $100 billion a year on education of health professionals, that's less than 2% of all of the expenditures for healthcare around the world. And if we are really counting on the next generation of health professionals to change medicine, to correct health disparities, to improve access to healthcare around the world, that, that investment is maybe not quite appropriate. Julio Frank talks a lot about changing, again, the content of how we educate health professionals. He talks about going from uh, the traditional models to more innovative models of education. He talks about creating experts, professionals, and leaders, and that transformative learning is the type of learning that produces leaders. And we'll loop back to what transformative learning can mean for places like Haiti and places like Boston, where I work as well. He goes from the you know, rote memorization of facts to a much more innovative analysis, synthesis, uh, and decision-making type of model of education. He, he says that you know, perhaps we should not have our health professionals just go to medical school or be focused so much on credentials, but have them actually really be focused on certain competencies and educational outcomes. And I know you guys are all in the midst of milestones and all of that great stuff, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, I want to shift a little bit to talk about uh, an article by Ben Sachs, who's an educator who's done a lot of work around innovation in medical education. And he writes a lot about the flipped classroom model, again, thinking about how we can take a step forward in medical education. And he talks about the fact that medicine is changing, right? And we see this with all the ACOs. We see this with Obamacare. Um, he talks about the fact that many medical schools are moving to this flipped classroom model and that one of the biggest changes is going to be that medical schools are going to be able to function with many fewer faculty and that that means that we're going to be able to invest resources in more innovative ways of teaching students. So things like adding value through hands-on training and saving 
funding from the fact that we don't necessarily need 250 faculty members to teach the first two years of medical school anymore. And what's that going to mean in terms of shifting priorities in medical education? He also talks about the fact uh, uh, that change number two in medical education and in healthcare in America is going to be that education and care shifts from very expensive hospital-based care to more community hospital-based and primary care community-based care, um, getting patients out of the hospital, taking care of them at home and in their communities. And what is that going to mean for how we teach medical students? How is that going to change the way that we do rotations, the way that we do clinical care for, for and, and clinical care practice for medical students? And then lastly, he talks about the fact that as research funding becomes more and more and more and more competitive, that certain academic centers are really just going to be able to get all of the grants, that many other academic centers are going to be marginalized. And what does that mean for how we teach education, excuse me, teach research? Um, so I think if you're interested again in innovation and education, this article is a really intriguing one to read. He describes these trends and says that we as educators and as academicians have to respond and change how we teach based on these trends that he thinks are definitely going to happen. Other models that are out there, the Cuban model. Uh, a bunch of us are actually going on a trip to Cuba to learn about their medical education system in the coming months. And there's a lot of interest in thinking about what has the Cuban model done? How are they able to teach their trainees the sense of responsibility for caring for the more poor and vulnerable and for working in places where patients need us, even if it's not exactly the sexiest place to live and work? Um, I just want to read this quote from Margaret Chan, who's the director general of the WHO, and she says that, I know of no other medical school with an admissions policy that gives first priority to candidates who come from poor communities and know firsthand what it means to live without access to essential medical care. For once, if you're poor, female, or from an indigenous population, you have a distinct advantage. And I highlight that because I think that part of what we're, part of the missteps we're making in education are that um, our admissions policies are not progressive. And we are focusing so much on MCATs and scores and numbers and not enough on you know, the breadth and depth of the human beings that we're trying to train to become doctors. Um, this is uh, another quote, uh, which I think is very, very powerful about how we should be or could be using medical education to correct health disparities. I'm going to read this one as well. So incorporating an explicit focus on social justice in medical education will lead to the training of physicians who understand that to advance the goal of health for all, they must work toward more equitable distribution of health care and the elimination of health disparities both within the U.S. and internationally. Again, thinking progressively about how we educate our trainees and how we might use that education to fix the health disparities that we all know so well. Um, I'm going to move through this one quickly, but this is really an, an, a very interesting model of what is our professional obligation as physicians and then what are some of our aspirational uh, models. It talks about the fact that 
you know, there is a clear commitment and responsibility for us to take care of patients, for us to ensure access to health care, for us to really man manage some of the direct socioeconomic illnesses, uh, effects, excuse me, influences that we see on the health of our patients, but that what we haven't pushed ourselves to do yet is have a critical conversation amongst medical professionals, not just physicians, about what our responsibility is when it comes to the broader socioeconomic influences that cause health disparities, and what are the global health influences that cause the global health disparities that we see. And at some point in, in my lifetime, I hope that we have that conversation in a really critical way. Um, some of you have probably seen this pie chart, which gets at this question of, well, why is it important to learn more than just physiology and biology? It really gets at the fact that so much of premature death is not just basic health care or hospital-based care, but it's behavior, it's genetics for sure, it's social circumstances, it's environmental circumstances. And if we know this, then how do we change how we teach our medical students and residents about how they should be practicing? Um, I want to really highlight this particular article, um, again, thinking progressively about medical education models. Um, this is written by um, a, a physician and policy expert named Fitzhugh Mullen, who's one of the leaders of the Beyond Flexner movement, which I'll talk a little bit more about. And what he talks about in this article is saying, okay, great, so we know we have health disparities, we know how we're currently teaching our trainees, how do we make the connection between the two and what are the educational outcomes that we should be focused on. And so what he created is a social mission score, essentially. And so he has assessed medical schools all across the U.S. using this social mission score. And the social mission score has three components. One of them is how many of the graduates from your medical school do primary care. A second component of the social mission score, excuse me, is how many of your health professional or medical school graduates practice in underserved areas that have a, a gap or a lack or a, um, a limited number of health professionals. And then the third is how many of them are actually taking care of underserved populations. And using this social mission score, you might not be surprised that it's the complete opposite um, ranking from the US News and World Report ranking for medical schools. So the schools that hit the highest on the social mission score are schools like Morehouse School of Medicine and Meharry School of Medicine, um, University of New Mexico. So these are schools that are really producing the physicians who are taking care of the most poor and most vulnerable patients and the patients that really need access to primary care. And just think how that might shift how we teach students if this was the type of score we were aiming for and not U.S. News and World Report. Um, I want to mention um, this, also, this innovative model that came out of Harvard, Harvard Graduate School for Education as well. Getting back to that question around are our admissions policies for medical school and residency impacting the types of doctors that we're training? And what they propose in this report, which I highly recommend you check out, it, uh, it was a huge inspiration to me when I started to read this report. They talk about the fact that maybe our admissions policies should be focused less on scores and numbers, and more on how much meaningful contribution to others, to community, to service, to engagement in civics, etc. If those were the things that we prioritized in our admissions policies, then perhaps the types of doctors we were producing would be a little bit different. And this is focused on undergraduate school, but you, you, you could apply these same principles to medical school. 
So to get a little bit more into the work that Dr. Cleofat Bryan and I have been doing, I want to talk a little bit about Partners in Health and the work that we've been doing in Haiti. And um, have any of you been to Haiti? One, two, three. <laughs> okay, not too many. Good. So I'm glad I started with a map. So the places where we work are here in rural Haiti. Um, Port-au-Prince is here. The epicenter of the earthquake was here in Leogan. Um, and this is where Partners in Health and Zami La Santé. Zami La Santé is Partners in Health in Creole. And it's the sister organization that runs all of our operations in Haiti. Um, and we started out here in rural Haiti, which at the time in the mid-1980s was literally not on the map. Um, it was a time in Haiti's history where there was a deep division between economic classes. There was a separate code of law for Haitians who lived in rural Haiti as compared to those who lived in Port-au-Prince. The education systems were very separate. Um, and then in the late 80s, there was a populist movement that really changed kind of the socioeconomic rung in Haiti. But when Partners in Health first started working in Haiti, that was the dynamic. And so the folks that lived here often... The folks that lived here often did not have birth certificates. They were not counted by the government. They had almost no access to health care. And none of the health providers wanted to move out there and work there. And you can imagine how challenging that must have been and how little access there was to health care. So that was kind of the, the founding and the history of where we started. And I show this picture because this was my education uh, in Haiti as an internal medicine resident. Um, it was not hanging out in hospital wards or kind of uh, seeing patients in you know, a consultation room constantly. It was doing home visits out in the community and it was doing mobile clinic. And these are three of my teachers. They're three community health workers who I used to do all the home visits and mobile clinics with. Um, and I think back all the time to that period of my training because it had such a profound and transformative impact on how I saw medical care, how I understood how poverty impacted health and health care, and how I understood my role as a physician. And I hope that more and more trainees get to have this kind of experience, be it in the U.S. or abroad. Um, and here's me back when I was young and energetic. Um, this was, um, as, as Ryan mentioned, mentioned, a huge part of my education as a, a global health equity resident in the Howard Hyatt program. And this is Howard Hyatt, who uh, was, I think, 89 at the time of this picture um, and still traveling to Haiti and continues to be deeply committed to this work. Um, and th these were my three colleagues who were in the program with me in my class at the time. This was our first trip to Haiti in August of 2009, and it completely changed the course of my training as a physician. And uh, just less than three months after my first trip to Haiti, the earthquake happened, and it completely changed the course of, of Haiti's history. Um, over uh, 200,000 people died in the earthquake. Um, it depends on who you ask. Some people say 300,000. Um, and this was for a country with a population of 10 million people. Um, and I hate to show this graph, but I also have to show this graph so that you can start to understand the impact of this earthquake. Um, so here's Haiti. Here's 
people killed per million inhabitants and, and damages in U.S. millions of dollars, uh, in U.S. 2009 millions of dollars. And you hate to compare disasters, but uh, it's hard to explain how much this impacted the history of this country. Um, this is the uh, nursing school in Haiti. And as I had mentioned, the state medical school um, is incredibly well respected and has been around for over 100 years. The state nursing school in Haiti, also incredibly well respected, um, had been around for many decades and was completely destroyed in the earthquake. And in, an entire class of nursing students unfortunately lost their lives um, because of the collapse of this building. So the country was in shambles. Um, over 70% of government infrastructure and buildings were either partially or completely destroyed. And so the country was in shambles, but the health system and the medical schools and teaching systems and medical education systems were in shambles as well. And it was on that foundation that we started to think about Mirbalay Hospital. But just again to reiterate um, the depth of this disaster. Um, we're still building back. And it's interesting just uh, to take a step back. I went to New Orleans last weekend and it was my first time going since Katrina happened. And it's been about 10 years now since Katrina. Um, I had been a couple of times before Katrina and this is my first time back after Katrina. And 10 years later, construction is ongoing. And there are still tons of buildings that are uninhabited and tons of areas of the city that are completely destroyed 10 years later. And this is in America, and we could be doing a lot better in New Orleans, but this is in America where we have the resources. So it is now 2016. It has been six years since the earthquake, and Haiti is still building back. And that's not unexpected. Um, but it, we just have to think about you know, how long it takes to build back from a disaster like this. Um, where literally, you know, 5% of the population is, is killed. So it was, again, in, in this context that we started to think about rebuilding um, the medical education infrastructure in the country and really thinking about the next generation of health professionals and how we could not repeat the same mistakes that we've been making for decades now in how we educate health professionals. And so this is their, our first class of residents at Mirbalay Hospital. Um, I had the honor of starting our first three residency programs when I was director of medical education at Mirbalay Hospital. And in October 2013, this first class of residents entered in pediatrics general surgery and internal medicine. And they're small programs, not quite as big as your program. Um, and this first class for us was a milestone. It was less than three years after the earthquake. Mirbalay Hospital, which I'll, tell, I'll talk more about, had been rebuilt, um, had been opened. And about nine months after opening, we started our residency programs. And it was, again, a huge, huge milestone for the country in terms of showing progress, right, and reinvesting in medical education, reinvesting in healthcare infrastructure after so much had been destroyed. And these residents uh, are, to this day, some of the most inspiring individuals that I know. Um, Ten of them are going to be graduating from residency this September and finishing in internal medicine and pediatrics. And in another two years, our first class of general surgery residents will graduate. Uh, it's the first five-year residency in the country. 
And I highlight this just because, again, this, this happened in a context of a crumbling medical education system. And it was already crumbling before the earthquake happened, unfortunately. Um, there had been a huge lack of investment in education of health professionals and a lack of really prioritization of educating the health workforce that was going to serve the population in Haiti. Um, this was the needs assessment that we did in 2012 before we started the residency programs at Mirabelle Hospital. And there were over 34 residency programs in the country, actually. But most of the physicians in the country are generalists, meaning they've done medical school and a one-year social service residency, but no actual specialty residency. And 80%, 80, 80% of residency-trained doctors in the country are in Port-au-Prince. And only about 30% of the population of the country is in Port-au-Prince. So you can imagine what kind of a gap that leaves in terms of access to you know, residency-trained doctors for the rest of the country. Almost all the teaching faculty are, are part-time. The cost of living in Haiti is extremely high, particularly after the earthquake. And this is why Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, because even though income is not exactly as low as it is in places like Rwanda or some countries in Africa, it's the cost of living that's extremely elevated that makes your dollar go um, so not far in Haiti. Um, and so being paid $500 a month as a full-time faculty member is impossible. So you can imagine most of the faculty members that do teach the residents and trainees right now are, you know, have other jobs because you can't live on 500 US dollars a month in Haiti, whereas you might actually in, in Rwanda and some other places. Um, only 45% of the teaching hospitals in Haiti had internet access and half had a medical library. So again, thinking about both the content and the structure of medical education, we knew that we had a lot of work to do, even pre-earthquake and even more so after the earthquake. So this is how Mirabelle Hospital was built. And Dr. Cleofa practices there. He's the department chair for internal medicine at this hospital. And what we tried to do with Mirabelle was correct some of the challenges that had already been identified in the education system and really think about taking a leap forward again, thinking about transformative education and not just formative education, thinking about how we cannot make the same mistakes in how we teach medical students and residents and how we could use this training facility not only to provide care for a population that really, really lacked access to health care, but also change the model for how we educate health professionals in Haiti, and that's what Dr. Cleofa has been doing. Um, this is just a map, and it always makes me smile when I look at it, because it kind of shows our history of medical education in Partners in Health and Zami La Santé in Haiti. Um, the highlight here, the thing to remember, is that by 2018, we'll have 100 graduates of our residency programs and 132 in training. And we believe that this workforce is going to be the workforce of the future for Haiti. And our job now is working with the government to figure out how we can make sure all of these graduates stay in Haiti and become agents for change in the health system, in reinforcing the health system, and in changing how medical education happens all around the country. Um, one of the ways we educate our residents differently 
is that they have experiences in the community as well as in clinics and in hospitals. And again, what we're hoping to do is thinking back to that Ben Sachs article, if we know that healthcare is changing both in the US and globally, and all of the forces are pushing and pushing and pushing for us to take care of patients where they want to be taken care of, which is not in some you know fancy hospital that's completely disconnected from their community and their culture, then we have to start teaching our residents now how to take care of patients at home, in the community, through mobile clinics, through home visits, and that needs to happen in Haiti as well as in America. And that's what we're trying to do at Mirabalay. This is another example of how we try to teach our residents differently. This is the kind of thing that our residents learn, and it's in Creole, so, and it's also just not projecting well, but um, this is the Kanj Declaration that was published in 2001 by our patients um, in Haiti who were demanding treatment for HIV. And at this time, treatment for HIV was really only happening in rich countries because it was so expensive. And you guys know the epic battle between cost and price and, and how all of this evolved over the past 15 years. But our patients back in 2001 were saying, we know we have a right to health care and we know we have a right to be treated for HIV. And our residents are learning this history and they're learning um, how hard it was to ensure the right to health care back in 2001 when it was the HIV at the height of the HIV epidemic in Haiti. I just show this because I'm proud of it. I'm proud of what we've been able to do at Mirabalay, but also I want to make the point that it would have been impossible to provide the volume of care that we're providing at Mirabalay Hospital for, again, a population that is deeply, deeply in need without the residency programs. And it would have been nearly impossible for Brigham and Women's Hospital to provide the level of care and the volume of care it provides without its residency programs. So it's, again, just reinforcing the point that these education programs are not only an investment in the future of healthcare, the future and the next generation of healthcare professionals, but this actually allows us to provide care at a level that we couldn't have done otherwise. I want to um, highlight Rwanda because even though I mentioned those numbers of 100 graduates from ZL PIH residency programs in 2018 and 132 in training, which is a huge contribution towards the health workforce in Haiti, Rwanda is doing an even more large-scale systematic investment in human resources for health through their seven-year HRH program, which I know that you, many of you are involved in. Um, they are going to be doubling the number of physicians, tripling the number of specialists and really investing in nursing care and oral health care in ways that are really unprecedented. And over the seven years of this program, they're going to be a huge step closer to the targets for health workforce needs that they've already identified for their country and their population. I want to just highlight a couple models of social medicine education. This is an organization worth looking into. It's called SocialMed Global. They're one of my collaborators for my work at Equal Health. And they're educating health professionals in a very innovative way, just as we are in Haiti. What they're doing is bringing together global health, excuse me, um, global international medical and nursing students with local Ugandan medical students and nursing students, putting them in the classroom together for three or four for weeks, and they're learning about the practice of medicine in the classroom a little bit, but really outside the classroom. And they're learning how to do home visits. They're learning how to do mobile clinics. They're learning how to take care of patients in the community. Um, it's a very powerful model for global health. 
because what really comes out of this is relationships between Ugandan nursing and medical students and American and Canadian nursing and medical students. And instead of sending medical students to do things they're not qualified to do for a global health experience, they're actually learning in the classroom together in a structured environment that actually provides them the experience and the education and not some uh, unethical experience that has them doing things that they should not be doing. Um, same for Equal Health, which is the organization that I co-founded with my colleagues in 2010. We're doing the same exact model in Haiti, and we're ha hosting our fourth annual social medicine course this July, doing the same thing, bringing together Haitian nursing and medical students and international nursing and medical students to learn together in the places like Conj that you saw. I'm going to skip through this, actually. Time. So I want to just take a second to think about upstream and downstream effects and think about how we could integrate this type of education into how we traditionally educate health professionals and medical students. If all we're teaching is that malaria is caused by Plasmodium falciparum and you give this medication to treat it, we're only teaching a part of the story. We're not talking about why that patient got malaria or why that society is subject to a malaria epidemic or what the structural forces are. What's the story of DEET, right, over the past hundred years? What are the structural forces that led to this population being more susceptible? Um, and thinking about social epidemiology. Um, so it's yet another plug to think about how we're teaching and if we're only teaching part of the story, what gaps that leads in the next generation of health professionals. This is another tool, narrative medicine. Um, I want to highlight this story, and I'm almost done, and hopefully we'll have a few minutes for questions still. Um, but I highlight this because it's one of the examples of the ripple effects of that progressive education model that I was mentioning that's currently being implemented in Uganda and in Haiti. This is an organization um, that was started by Haitian medical and nursing students after they took the social medicine course in Haiti um, in July of 2012. This was our first class of, of students. And they they started this organization called Social Medicine Alumni Haiti because they decided at the end of this course that all of their colleagues in nursing school and medical school in Haiti should be learning about social medicine as well, that it shouldn't be just this small group that participates in the course. And they started this organization and have since held two annual conferences that have brought together over 250 nursing and medical students from across the medical schools in Haiti to do two-day seminars in social medicine approaches, thinking again about the upstream effects of health, of poverty on health, of environment, of education on health, they felt like it was so important that they wanted to spread it. And it led them to act. It led them to do the civic engagement and the community engagement that we're talking about. It led them to feel empowered to be agents for change in education and in their health system. And this can happen anywhere. So just a couple of quick ideas around future directions before I close. Um, some people think that the future of education should get back to the principles of Alma-Ada from the 70s. Others think that we should really be matching our education priorities with the health disparities and the inequities that currently exist in our health system in the U.S. and abroad and use education more formally as a way to correct 
those inequities. Others think that we should be moving towards the Cuban model. Others think that we're doing fine right where we are. Others think that we should be thinking more about what the educational outcomes are. And that's what, again, what that social mission score was trying to get at. Um, I would encourage all of you to read this if you have a chance. It came out back in 2005, I think, yes. Um, and it's about five futures for academic medicine. And it talks about, again, those changing trends that Ben Sachs also discussed in his article, how healthcare in America and beyond is shifting. And it proposes five futures for academic medicine uh, because we all know that it's changing, right? Academic medicine the way it is today is not going to be the way it is in 20 or 30 years because of all of these global trends and changes and shifts. One of the five futures that they propose in this article is that academic medicine is about global health equity. Um, I would hope that that one becomes the true model. I'm not sure that it will, but it's certainly worth reading and thinking about as you guys structure your global health programs and your academic time towards global health equity, which I know you're already doing. Um, I want to close by mentioning this upcoming conference, which you are all invited to. Um, many of the organizations that I mentioned are, have formed something called the Social Medicine Consortium, and it's thinking about, again, transforming the model for education um, and making education of health professionals in America and beyond more about health disparities inequities in our health system and some of the uh, challenges that we all see every day in how we take care of patients currently. And I just want to thank Dr. Uh, Remillard for inviting me today, which was a true honor. Dr. Cleofat, who I work with very closely, um, the whole Department of Medicine for having me, and all of these collaborators who have uh, influenced me and helped me to create this presentation. So thank you for your time. Thank you. We have a little time for questions or comments. Thank you for that great presentation. Uh, it strikes me that you guys work in, in Rwanda and Haiti, and I guess I want to press you a little on one of your comments. You were saying that mm -hmm. we have this amazing program in Rwanda, but now what will people be able to do? It strikes me that Rwanda, where there is this partnership with the government and this effort to really do this thing, and you mentioned sort of trying to work with the government in Haiti. We hear about the elections in Haiti and the so how how do you work in that environment where the government is, is uh, I don't know what the government is. It's mm, a fantastic question. It's one of our biggest challenges. And I think the answer to it um, has been complex. And when Partners in Health and Zambia La Sante first started working in Haiti in the mid-80s, it was even more complex than it is now. I think the answer that I hear from all of my colleagues who've been doing it much longer than I have is that even though our goal is to work with the government towards reinforcing the government run and the public sector health system, we can't wait for the government to figure out some of the political challenges, the lack of funding, et cetera, et cetera. What we can do is work with them in their current state, flawed as it may be, and show that it can still work. We, at this point, can't take over the country, although I do hope that some of the leaders that have trained and worked with Partners in Health and Zami La Sante become future leaders of the country, um, but that we can't use the political instability as an excuse to not act. 
and that even though our long-term goal is that, we can even show progress and success with a very dysfunctional government because um, the approach to collaboration is really around making sure that our priorities are the government's priorities and showing that we can still work together even in a very broken system. So, um, back when you're talking about admission to school and the way that we screen students and bring them in, it seems that one of the fundamental problems is that even as you change that, you, certainly your home institution and mm -hmm. ours as well, you now have created doctors who are amongst the most prestigiously credentialed mm -hmm. physicians out there. And even if you transform the conversation in medical education, how do you, what, what's really needed structurally or programmatically mm -hmm. to not make this just medical tourism mm -hmm. and merit badge mm -hmm. and then continue with your very prestigious credential mm -hmm. to now be amongst the highest paid physicians? Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. I don't, I don't think I have a good answer, honestly. I think it's just as it took, you know, be after Flexner, you know, decades for the system to change, at least there was a clear direction. What I don't think we have right now is a clear direction for how we want to change and transform the medical education system. I think that's where we start. Because you're right, if it's just these one-off changes in certain admission policies and in certain schools and it's not a more systemic movement around transforming medical education, it does become just the medical tourism and it does become the one-offs and it becomes, you know, certain folks are trained this way, but the majority of folks are trained to be these very prestigious, professionalized, kind of godlike doctors who don't know how to take care of patients well and who lack humility. You know, I think we see it with our undergraduate institutions. Yes. Even though the face of the demographics is in the most prestigious undergraduate institutions, mm. it's still very hard to recruit even to a life in academics or mm. medicine. Mm. And really, our competition with Wall Street yeah. really fail. Absolutely. And so how the, how the whole thing becomes a different thing, but mm -hmm. the destination is not um, what it currently is. That is, I could not agree more. And if, if you check out that report, that's exactly what they talk about. They talk about the fact that we should not be focused, so focused on sending students to these elite schools, right? Because that actually takes away from the way that we're educating them and this question of kind of universality and civic engagement. And that if we're so focused on getting into elite schools and those are the only schools that have value, we're doing a huge disservice and injustice to the rest of the schools, when in fact, the difference is just a matter of a couple hundred years and an endowment, right? So I think, I think that's exactly what that report gets into. I hope that more people read it and that it actually starts to influence change in policy. Yeah. So, so the history of medicine in the Western world is very much tied up with technology mm -hmm. and development. And um, recognizing that technology is certainly not an answer to all the socioeconomic political issues, uh, in our country, certainly, we're, we're moving more toward using technologies like a smartphone to mm -hmm. reach people in the community. And I'm aware in certain parts of the technologically undeveloped world, in fact, access to cell phones is pretty broad. I'm just curious mm -hmm. about the use of smartphones mm -hmm. in, in, in a country otherwise where there's very little infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Does this have a role in trying to deliver care where people live? 
I, I think yes. The answer is 100% yes. In Rwanda in particular, there's a lot happening around this. Um, even in Haiti, we're now using a lot of our social um, support networks to transfer funds through cell phones. And so it's becoming more and more widely used for both the socioeconomic challenges as well as the healthcare challenges. One of the big problems in Haiti that's limiting more broad uptake is the lack of electricity. Um, and the electricity infrastructure outside of Port-au-Prince and even within Port-au-Prince is very fragile. And so even though I would say 100% of my patients in Haiti have cell phones, maybe half of them are able to kind of consistently charge and use their cell phone. And so it's a great example of how infrastructure, you know, either propels forward or really inhibits progress around technology. Um, and if we could figure out the electricity issues in Haiti, I mean, that would be, that would be the real leap forward. Yeah. Um, to, to bring it back home to this country, um, it strikes me that uh, we're uh, quite successful in uh, the elite education that you talk about. Um, but there are huge slices of the population that are underserved, um, mm. uh, many of them even very close to this institution and to yours. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, people that we train come out with such enormous debt that very few are now directing their careers toward service in those communities or even to the primary care specialties. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we change that trajectory. Mm -hmm. That is a fantastic question. I think it has to change. And I think towards your point as well, this can't be these one-offs, right? There has to be a broad agreement that the way we're currently doing it is producing the inequities that we that we see in our health system. And that if we don't change the whole system, right, and shift the whole system, we're gonna continue to have all of these inequities. I think another big piece of it is that even, even though we're training folks in, in all kinds of different patches and we don't have a consistent way that we train our medical students and our uh, residents around health inequities and their role in health inequities, I think one of the biggest challenges is, well, the incentives in academic medicine, where most of our medical students and residents are training these days, are also not in line with any of this, right? Because to get promoted, you don't get promoted based on working in Haiti or doing service work or civic engagement or, you know, movement building or any of those things. And maybe at some point in history, I actually don't know what the incentives were earlier on in the 1900s, maybe at some point in history that was was a part of what was really valued. Um, but if our values are really only about a very narrow set of academic products, well then our trainees and our junior faculty members like myself are gonna focus their time on that. And I can just speak very personally to this because I have been living in Haiti for a couple of years and then moved back to Boston in, in September and have been much more focused on the Boston side even though I travel to Haiti about uh, a week or so a month. And I'll just say that in these past six months I've become so much more stingy with my time because now what I'm being told is you have to get promoted, you need to do this, you need to do that. And what pays in the promotion system is publishing articles, right? And that's not what I really like to spend my time doing. I would much rather be working with Dr. Cleofa and our team in Haiti on getting ACGME international accreditation and making our programs better there. Um, but that doesn't 
count. It counts to me, um, but it doesn't count in our academic system. And how can we change that? Because if we change that, I think that some of the priorities around both choice of field to go into, as well as what our trainees and graduates focus on, will also shift. But I think the incentives are wrong, from what I see, at least right now. I think that's a, this was a very fundamental question. Mm -hmm. You know, in some countries, there's assistance in the tuition and the payment for the education, mm -hmm. but then an obligation to serve in an underserved area, which works, I think, well in, the, in some of the countries I've seen mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. So you have an obligatory year of payback mm -hmm. if someone, like the government, pays for that education, but mm -hmm. then that, that serves everyone. So what are... Our challenge is how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing an increasing debt. You may have seen that even our own Dartmouth tuition for the medical school is going up. I think it's 3% for mm -hmm. next year, which mm -hmm. was under what uh, it could have gone up. But all of the schools in America are doing that. Mm -hmm. And we continue to graduate our physician students with increasing debt, which mm -hmm. is influencing their economic choices, mm -hmm. lifestyle, and, and mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. We have our work cut out for us, but we're delighted mm -hmm. that you've been up here today to really open our eyes up to both the world and of all the things that you're doing. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.